You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, guys, good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you guys have joined us this morning. We are continuing on in our sermon series through the book of First Peter, and so I would invite you to go ahead and turn there. We are going to be this morning in First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And just so you guys know, if you are new here, this is a regular rhythm of ours. We will work our way primarily through entire books of the Bible from left to right. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One being that we believe what Scripture says about itself, which is that every single word is good. Every word is profitable. Every word is useful. It is life-giving because it is the words of our Lord who is himself good and life. I tell you that because we are finding ourselves this morning in the midst of kind of a three-part mini-series within the book of Peter that is probably the least popular passages in the entire book. But if you were going to take a selection out of 1 Peter, you wouldn't probably immediately go to what I lovingly refer to the three submission passages. Because who doesn't show up on a Sunday morning thinking, gosh, I really hope this morning I will be told to subject myself to things I don't want to. But that's where we find ourselves this morning. And I want you to know, as we continue on, that, that Peter is not just kind of randomly entering into commands as he gets into these passages, but that Peter is unfolding for us the implications of the gospel. He spent the first chapter and a half of his letter to these Christ followers that have been dispersed throughout the ancient world. He has spent the first chapter and a half unfolding for them this beautiful truth of who Christ is and what he has done through his sacrifice on the cross and what has been accomplished through the resurrection of his body from the grave. And he culminates that passage by telling us that the good news of the gospel has made us this. Hear these words from verse 9 and 10. Peter says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation and a people for his, that being God the Father, his own possession. He goes on to say that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And I love these words. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
And so Peter is saying now, as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as God's beloved possession of those in his marvelous light, as those that are now called his people that have received grace and mercy, Peter goes on in today's passage to say, servants be subject to your masters. As I said, this is week two of this three-part subject yourself or submit yourself passages. If you have a Bible with subtitles, it might even be under the subtitle of submission to authority. To submit yourself or subject yourself, that the original Greek word, it's a word picture. It means to settle yourself under something, right? It, it makes me think of uh, Rachel's parents live out on a, a farm, and they routinely have farm dogs, and farm dogs, whether you have a male and a female, tend to find another male or female. And so there's routinely not just farm dogs, but farm puppies that are being born. And if you look at a, a mom with newborn puppies... You'll find every once in a while this moment where these brand new, small little creatures, they'll burrow themselves underneath of mom, sometimes to feed and sometimes just to get comfortable and to sleep. Sometimes mom will, will try and get away from the puppies and kind of get her own space a little bit, but here comes the five, six, seven, eight puppies, and they'll find their way over and they'll settle themselves underneath of her. This is what it means for us to submit or subject ourselves. It means that we have to get low, first of all. We have to get under something. And to get low is not something that we like to do. The entirety of our lives... Right, the, the, the song that hopefully one of you know, because every time I make a cultural reference in this church, I am all by myself. Moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment, where? In the sky. You know what no one ever sings? Moving on down. To the ground floor in a basement apartment with no windows. It's my hope. Right? We all want to esteem ourselves. We want to build ourselves up. Right? No one goes, hey, listen, I could really use you to tear me down right now. I just, I need to get lower. But that's what Peter calls us to. He says, subject yourself, get low, get under and then he doesn't just say to do it once, but he says to settle ourselves under. You hear that? He says, he says, make that your place. Not just for a moment, but get comfortable there. Subject, submit, settle yourself. And this is hard for us because we live in an age of choice. Right? I have a choice for who I vote for. I have a choice where I work. I have a choice who I marry. I have a choice where I live. I have a choice what I drive and what hobbies I have. I have a 
choice of what church I am a part of. We live in an age of choice. But Peter is writing to a people who roundly lack choice. Notice who he addresses this specific verse to. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter is speaking to servants, and most servants are not servants out of choice, but out of necessity. They didn't choose to find themselves in a place of servitude, of not being their own master, of having to be under the authority of another. But in this place and time, it's not just these servants who are stuck. You know, for, for generations, most people found their lot in life where they were born. They didn't have the capacity to decide if, you know, I, I, I telework. And so I'm going to, well, I don't telework, by the way. I'm, this is a metaphor. It would be an interesting pastoral job if I got to telework. Oh, you guys need counseling? All right, well, let's set up a Zoom call, right? But, but if you telework, you can literally, at this point in time and day and age, go on to Zillow and go, where do I want to live? I can live anywhere. But when Isaiah and the book of Acts says that the Lord God himself sets the boundaries and ordains the steps of every man, woman, and child where they would live and work, play, and sleep, these original hearers knew what that meant. They had been dispersed from their home, not because they wanted to, but because they were forced to. And now they lived where they must live, the only place perhaps that they could even provide for themselves. Now, here, here's why I'm telling you this. See, even though we are a generation with probably more choice than ever, we are also a generation with record high levels of discontentment, disillusionment, anxiety, depression. Now, why is that? I think Peter is going to clue us in on something. That what we need most is not to continue to change our life until everything works as we think it ought. But instead, in the midst of where we find ourselves, to settle ourselves underneath of the hand of one who will bring us joy and who will bring us contentment, who will never leave nor forsake us. Peter says, subject yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He goes on, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, and are beaten for it, you endure. 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the word servant here. Because as much as Peter was writing to servants, this same passage could have been applied to farmers or craftsmen or laborers or anyone else who find themselves in a situation that doesn't feel pleasing or good or helpful or even life-giving. So what does Peter call these servants, and what does he call the saints to do? Well, if I had to summarize verses 18 to 20, here's what Peter says. One, be subject to those in authority over you. Just got done doing that last week when he told us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject to every authority. Two, Endure sorrows. And three, he says, do good and suffer. Glad you guys showed up this morning, right? (laughs) Subject yourself to all those in authority over you. Endure sorrows and hardship in your life and do good even if it comes with suffering. Peter, as he unpacks this command, he he makes very clear what concerns him most about the churches he is writing to. He's concerned with their conduct towards their masters or employers or those in authority over them. He's concerned with who they are thinking of as they are working, serving, and living, which would be the Lord. He says in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. When you are mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And he's also concerned about their attitudes and how those attitudes and actions please or displease the Lord. Now, having said that, that also means that if these are the things he's concerned most with, there's things that he doesn't appear to be overly concerned with. And he doesn't appear to be overly concerned with the working conditions of these servants. He doesn't appear to be overly concerned with whether or not their earthly masters or those in authority over them are fair or honorable or good. And he doesn't seem to primarily care about whether or not these servants should or can make their way out of their current position in order to get into another one that is better. Now, why do I tell you that there are these certain things that Peter is concerned with? How they conduct themselves towards their masters or employers or those in authority who they are thinking of as they work the Lord, and how their attitudes and actions please the Lord, all while not appearing all that concerned with the specific circumstances that they find themselves in. Why and what is Peter driving at? 
Well, it seems like Peter is building off of his call from last week that we would submit to those governing authorities in our life. He's taking a call to submission to those things that are out there. The government out there, the institutions out there, the governing authorities out there. And now he's pulling that command very close to home. And he's calling us to submit, to even honor, to do good towards those things that are right here in front of me. My boss that I deal with daily. Those other authorities in my life, children, like parents who I deal with daily. All the way down to the circumstances in my life that I find myself, even that I would call unfair, unkind, or difficult. We are called to submit to the emperor, even if his laws and decrees are unkind or unfair. And we are called to submit to our masters or our employers or our other daily authorities even if their conduct towards us is unkind and unfair. But Peter goes on beyond just saying that we should do these things or commanding us that we must do these things. He actually says that it is good that we do these things. That when we are mindful of God, as I said, it says in verse 19, Or in other translations, it says when we are conscious of God or aware of God and his will, or when God is the one that is the central place in our mind and focus, that when in the midst of that, we submit even to authorities and circumstances in our life that are difficult or hard or even harmful, it is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. Some translations translate that word gracious thing as good or honorable. But, but the Greek word is, is the word charis. It, it's the exact same word that we use talking about Jesus' gracious gift of salvation to us. Or, or how the Lord showed grace to us by sending Jesus. The word literally means pleasing beautiful, like a gift that is given to someone. And Peter says, when you settle yourself under authority, when you settle yourself in your life, in your place, even when it is difficult and hard, and when you do so enduring while doing good, it is pleasing to the Lord. It is beautiful to the Lord. It is a gift to the Lord. Now we're going to get into and unpack this, but I I just, I want to pause and I want you to kind of soak in for a second the implications of what Peter is saying. And one of the things that he is saying, that for each one of us, as we live, as we work as we struggle and as we bear up under the difficulty of our lives, that God sees you and he is pleased in you. 
Like, and I always want to uh, be careful. I don't know if there's a royal you, like there's a royal we, but I'm in Texas, so here's what I want you to hear. What it doesn't say is that God is pleased with y'all, okay? Like, yeah, he's pleased with us. Us, y'all, that can't be right, but nonetheless, someone will teach me now. No, what he says is God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. He's pleased with you. He sees you when you suffer. He sees you when life feels overwhelming and burdensome. He sees you when you find yourself in circumstances and under authority and having to deal with people that are hard and and, and absolutely great on your nerves and make life not life-giving, but it feels like it's life-taking. And when you bear up underneath of it, in the midst of the daily agitation of life, the daily hard, the daily yuck, the daily exasperating, the daily I don't want to do this and be in this, God sees you. He cares for you. And he is pleased by you. When we suffer, specifically when we suffer unjustly, when we submit ourselves to the people and circumstances we find ourselves under, we are testifying to two foundational truths. The first is that God is in control of all things, and that includes the things in my life that are difficult and bring suffering. See, the same God who caused the cross and death of Jesus to lead to the salvation of all mankind is working and directing my circumstances. Listen, we all ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And we can equivocate on whether or not anyone is truly good. But really what we're saying is, is why is there so much suffering? And why is there suffering that doesn't seem to be caused at all by what people have done? Just this past week, another Acts 29 pastor lost his wife. A man my age, with kids my kid's age, his wife died this past week after suffering a life of chronic pain and depression. And I look and I go, why? And the only answer I have is that the same God who uses crucifixion to bring resurrection can somehow use suffering to bring glory. And so when we submit, when we suffer unjustly, when we settle ourselves in our life, even when it's hard and difficult, we testify to the fact that God, not us, is in control and that he is always good. And second, we testify that our present realities, our circumstances, what we see and what we feel, what others would say is most true about our lives is just a temporary reality and not the greater reality. That our identities as sufferers or servants, 
as those who are oppressed or harassed or treated unfairly or not given the due that they deserve or not recognized like they ought to be. That those identities are only temporary and the greater identities that we have are those that we just read. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and God's beloved possession, our current circumstances as exiles in a broken world, cannot, does not, will not supersede our permanent place as those marked for glory and redemption. This is what Paul meant when he said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It doesn't mean that things aren't hard. It doesn't mean that difficult people don't make life difficult. It doesn't mean that people can't or won't hurt us. It just means that none of those things will ever take away what Jesus has given to us, which is an eternity of glory and peace, as Pastor Robert said, of hope and joy, contentment in the presence of our God. Peter goes on. And he says something maybe even more difficult. He says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Peter tells us that this uh, need to suffer, that this need to submit to authority that is even unjust, this need to deal with hardship even when you don't deserve it, is not an unhappy coincidence. It's not something that some of us may eventually one day have to deal with. He tells us that this is our calling as Christ followers. Did you hear that? This is our calling? This is what I sat in all week. Going, God, this is our calling? To submit to those that are not worthy, in my mind, of being honored and submitted to? Of dealing with people who make my life difficult? Of, of, of settling myself in circumstances that I don't like? Of dealing with sorrows and suffering that I wish would go away? This is our calling? And Peter says, yeah. Remember, Jesus said, in this life, there will be many trials. Peter goes on later in this letter in chapter 4 and tells us, don't be surprised when suffering does come. Paul even tells us the crazy thing that it has been granted, gifted to us, to not just believe in Christ, but to suffer in his name. Each of us have a place in our life where Peter is calling us to submit and we don't want to to patiently endure when we want to get out, to do good when we would rather do anything that relieves what we are facing, and to revile others when they revile us. Perhaps you do work for a boss who is unkind, difficult, or hard to respect. Maybe you're a child and you are convinced that the wisdom of your parents is wrong, incorrect, or simply mixed all up with their own selfishness and sin. Perhaps you're forced to care for someone else 
or are burdened by someone else in your life because of their failures and sin rather than anything you have done. Perhaps you are treated badly by others when you are in the right and they are in the wrong. Perhaps you aren't getting the recognition in your life you deserve. Perhaps in a number of other ways you are suffering unfairly or have suffered unfairly in the past or one day will suffer, not because of your sin, but because of the brokenness of the world in which you live and the brokenness of the people in which you live that life with. And Peter tells us to subject ourselves, to settle ourselves, to endure and even suffer if necessary. Listen, I am terrible at this. I hate suffering. I am by nature a fixer. Uh, As I preached this morning, my hands are swollen and sore, and I can almost not close them because all this week I have been renoing, renovating a house that we just got access to. I've been ripping out flooring and laying down flooring, and I'm realizing that I have been gripping the tools that I have been using so tightly in order to fix my house that at this point in time I am bruised from gripping so tightly. And listen, I don't just do that when I'm fixing physical things. I grasp so tightly to the things in my life that I don't like, the things that give me trouble, the things that are difficult, the suffering of my own and those around me. I white-knuckle it so much believing that I can fix it, that I can hear with utter clarity as I lay my head down And as I rise up, the Lord saying to me, settle yourself. Lay it down. Subject yourself. And not primarily to people, but to me. And so how in the world do we do this? Well, Peter ends with what sounds like just another recap of the gospel. But he's also in proclaiming the gospel, giving us very practical wisdom. He says, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." I grew up in a Baptist church, and and there was this kind of tongue-in-cheek joke that there's only one answer in Sunday school. Do you know what it is? Jesus. You know what I found out as I have lived life? There's only one answer to everything, and it's Jesus. How in the world can we submit to difficult people? How can we settle ourselves in circumstances that we don't like? 
How can we be okay enduring hardship and suffering and sorrow in our life? And Peter tells us it's Jesus. Very quickly, three ways that Jesus allows us, helps us, steadies us, even invites us graciously into subjecting ourselves. One, Peter tells us, follow the example of Jesus. Two, he tells us, look to the finished work of Jesus. And three, he tells us to settle ourselves in the presence of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus, look to the finished work of Jesus, and settle ourselves in the presence of Jesus. First, the example of Jesus. Peter calls us to follow the example of Christ with two word pictures. First, when he calls Christ an example, he's literally using a word that means to trace. Uh, I am uh, artistically challenged. It's the nice way of putting it. And my wife is artistically gifted. And so it's likely if you asked me to draw a beautiful drawing, here's what I would do. I would go home without giving my wife any clue that you had made this request of me. I would tell her that I have a desire for a specific, beautiful drawing. I would let her draw it. Then I would take it over to the window. I would tape it on the window. And I would put a very thin piece of paper over it, and I would trace the entire thing. It's the only way that you're getting anything beautiful out of me. And Peter says, Jesus is the masterpiece that we are meant to trace our lives from. But he also tells us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I remember when we lived in Chicago for almost a decade, um, one of the things I'm really, really not missing and won't miss this winter is that from about mid-December until April, without fail, I was snowblowing and shoveling my driveway at least once a week. And sometimes we would get these storms that would blow in, and overnight we'd have 16, 18, 20, 24 inches of snow. And we had little boys at the time, and so I remember coming out the front door of our apartment one day after a snowstorm, and we were going to go get in the car to go get food or something, and our boys were, they wanted to walk behind me. And so I said, okay, go ahead. And they took a step, and like immediately it was up to their waist. And they're like, I can't go anywhere. And so I remember going before them and stepping in the snow in order to make these footprints that they could finally walk in, that they could finally make their way in. And Peter says that Jesus has given us footprints that like a little child, we would look down and simply take the next step into his footprint. The example of Jesus is that though he did not sin, he still suffered. The example of Jesus is that he did not treat others the way that they treated him. He did not revile when he was reviled. He did not threaten those who threatened him. And the example of Jesus is that he trusted the Lord. We call Christ the true and better Adam, meaning that he is the picture of what real humanity is. 
He is what it means to bear the image of God. And so for us who are now new creations in Christ Jesus, we are called to walk out the same life that he lived. To trace our life after him, to follow in his footsteps. And Jesus' footsteps were that he loved the Father. And he showed it by obeying his commands. That he loved others selfishly. And he showed that love in the way that he healed humanity with his hands, even while humanity beat him with theirs. And finally, Jesus, I love this. It says this down in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, not accounting equality with God as something to be grasped, emptied himself. And he went lower and lower and lower to the point of death and death on the cross. And then it says, therefore God has highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus knew that his path downward would eventually end in resurrection. But he entrusted the work of the Father with that, the power of the Spirit with that, he gave his life into their hands and he followed the path that the Father called him to walk. And now we are called to lead or to follow Jesus in that same example. Love the Father, love and honor those created in his image, even if you feel like they're not worthy of it, and trust the Father's good, gracious, and loving plan, even if. That plan feels like death because death leads to life in the economy of our God. Follow the example of Jesus and then look to the finished work of Jesus. Peter Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was once confronted with a paralytic, a man who was born paralyzed from the waist down from birth. And after a long and dramatic story, this this man is finally presented to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and you can kind of feel the tension in this, this, this young man who's been paralyzed, looked down upon, probably despised the, the life and lot that he's been given. He's waiting for Jesus to say the magic words, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, your sins have been forgiven. You can almost imagine that young man's reaction in the moment. What? My sins have been forgiven? You think my friends got me in front of you so you could tell me that? My sins? 
But the point that Jesus is making is not that physical suffering, and he healed him, by the way, physically as well. But the point that he was making is not that physical suffering is inconsequential, but that it pales in comparison to the deeper, larger, eternal, grander need of our true sickness, which is sin and separation from God. Jesus healed so many physical hurts and pains while on earth so that we know he cares for his beloved creation and what they suffer. But what we also know was that he didn't come to free Israel from Rome. He came to free humanity from condemnation and death. And Peter is telling us to fix our eyes on the truth that we already have been healed that the thing we most need changed in our life has already been changed through his work on the cross. And that's not in the future tense, but the past tense. We have been judged innocents. We have been given an inheritance with Jesus. We have been and are loved now. And so this helps us in our current circumstances when all of life says to us that we and the life that we live are broken and forgotten about. As one song put it, God didn't whisper, I love you from heaven. He shouted love from on the cross. We aren't forgotten. Our lives are not truly broken. The finished work of Jesus says that we have already been healed and there is coming a day when even the circumstances around us will testify to it. And finally, he says, settle yourself in the presence of Jesus. He ends like this. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says that One time we were wandering, we were alone like a single sheep in the midst of a wild, dark wilderness. But now we have been brought back in, back to the presence of our good and loving shepherd. And Peter says to be with Jesus, to be under the care of our shepherd does not mean that we will not suffer. And Peter knew this. But it does mean that any difficulty we face is allowed to us and comes to us through the guard and care and love of our shepherd. Let me say that again. Any place you find yourself, circumstance you find yourself, authority you are under, suffering or difficulty, agitation that you despise, if it is not due to your sin, then it has come through the hands and care and guarding and love of your shepherd. Robert, when he was first mentoring me in the church and he was leading me into an elder candidacy role, we read this book called The Way of the Shepherd. It's actually kind of a a business analogy book, but in the midst of it, 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 it continuously tells these stories of a shepherd, a modern day shepherd, or what we might call a rancher now. 
And there's this story that he tells of, of how they would gather up these sheep that had been out in the field and were beginning to be infested with different parasites and bugs, and they would have to lift them up and they would dip them in this vat of antiseptic. And he says, when they do it, the scene and the sounds of the fight that these sheep put up is horrifying you would literally think that they were being killed. But they're actually being healed. They just don't understand the care and the wisdom of their shepherd. I don't know why suffering is in your life. I don't know why the Lord has called you to a difficult obedience. But I know him, and he is good. Church, we are all subjects. We're all called to subject ourselves. And Peter calls us to subject ourselves to other people who are broken. But when we subject ourselves to the government, when we subject ourselves to employers, when we subject ourselves to other people in relationships around us, when we subject ourselves even to the circumstances we find ourselves in, you are not primarily placing your fate, your life, your care in the hands of other broken people. You are placing them in the hands of the God who loves you, and that is a good place to be. Pray with me.